define multiple things, whether it's height, whether it's waist size, whatever. I'm not Kevin. Um, and so I am uh, I'm, uh, having the opportunity to be able to preach here while he's on vacation. And just want to encourage you all over these two weeks. Um, they've been gone for about a week now and are going to be gone uh, through next Sunday just to keep them in prayer and their family in prayer as they have an opportunity to be away. Uh, I know a lot of us feel this way about a lot of the jobs and the roles that we do. But there's something about pastoral ministry that unless you are in it, it's really hard to explain. <laughs> and it's really hard the depth of thought and care and compassion. And I know it's such a great joy for Kevin and Casey and their family to be able to serve y'all in the ways that they serve y'all. Um, but it's also a great privilege for us as a community to be able to give a break in the midst of that, um, especially when you think of church planting um, and just the, the deep commitment and call that is done uh, with joy and excitement, um, but I always just want to have the opportunity, and this is just from me, my thoughts alone, but through uh, just my education, my experience, and teaching within this realm, uh, just to encourage us as a community about how to best li love and serve the leaders that, that guide us, um, and, and teach us, and have committed to journeying with us. Uh, it's a very selfless job, and so um, pastors, I feel like, need to have advocates for them. <laughs> um, just like in other roles that I'm in, I need advocates for me. And so just to, to bring that forward, let's keep them in prayer over these two weeks. That is just a great time to be able to be recalibrated, re-engaged, some rest um, within that. And so it's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, before we dive into our text and topic for today, let's just open with prayer. Uh, Lord, just thank you for this community, um, for those who have journeyed together. Uh, and those that have uh, come around these last few weeks, just an opportunity to dive into who you are, uh, who you've called us to be, and what does it mean um, to be present in the world in light of all those things, and foundationally giving glory and honor to you. And we just pray that that's what this morning can be, and pray for clarity and receptivity that brings that about uh, this morning. In your name, amen. So we're in this uh, summer series, uh, a lot of you are aware about, that we're talking about questions that y'all have submitted uh, over the end of winter into spring uh, that we put together throughout the summer. And so this series is going to take us through the end of summer, um, depending on what you do for uh, life. Um, end of summer is a lot of different things for a lot of different people, but we'll probably be in this till near the end of August. Uh, and as I say that, I have to remind myself that is in fact August right now, <laughs> uh, as I have plenty of students that are constantly emailing me about needs whatnot. And then we'll be diving into the book of Hebrews. So uh, if you're not familiar with our normal rhythm, our normal rhythm is to go deep through books of the Bible, literally not skipping any aspect of it and just preaching through. Uh, but for the summer, we want to take the opportunity to see what questions that y'all have. And as you know, you all have questions, whether you articulate them or not. Uh, I am uh, probably articulate too many of my questions, uh, but for some of y'all, this is a good opportunity to be like, I'm not going to bring that up in an event. I'm not going to bring that in church. And so you've submitted questions to talk about. And just as an encouragement, as Kevin has always done, we want y'all to keep these conversations going. Uh, some of you are still meeting in your community groups through summer. Some of you are getting together in other activities. And so, um, actually, no, no matter how much I don't actually think I have all the answers at all, like, the conversation doesn't end with whoever's up here speaking. So we pray, we study, we try to prepare something, but we want to continue on in these conversations as a community. So all these questions that we've had, the questions that remain, we really just want to encourage y'all to keep pressing into it. So this morning, um, the question that was submitted is, could you do a sermon on the character of Jesus? So a very narrow, defined topic with not a million different paths you could go, right? Uh, it seems to be the times that I've gotten to speak through this series, I get the, 
the questions that on the surface level, there's a lot of meat there, but then you realize that how much meat is there actually becomes part of the problem. Because uh, you're like, wait, there's many doors that we could go through here. And so this is by no means exhaustive, but want to speak to things that we see about Jesus throughout the scriptures that can point us to that and what we can learn from Jesus's character. And so for our primary framework text, I want to read through uh, Matthew um, 4, verses 1 through 11, uh, which is the temptation of Jesus um, as he is sent out into the wilderness uh, before his public ministry begins. And so Matthew 4 through 11, one, Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, reads like this. <coughs> then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the, temper, uh, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he had answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So as we think about the character of Jesus and who Jesus is, foundationally, when we talk about character, we're really just talking about the features or attributes that make you who you are, that distinguish you, that set you apart, that make you unique to you. And now if we're talking about the Son of God, that's going to be a long list of characteristics. Right, um, But one of the things that I want to bring out of this is we think about just the base definition of character that most of us are working with um, as we think about it, thinking about what is it that in this action and a couple other actions that we're going to look at that we reveal about who Jesus is and Jesus' character. And oftentimes when we think of attributes or features, we think about things that people do. You know, so-and-so did this or did this, and that, that really speaks to their character. But also things that they don't do speak to their character, right? Things that they say no to, things that they reject that shows just as much of their values and who they are as a person as the things that they say yes to. And so I think for our primary framework here, this temptation text works really well to highlight aspects of who Jesus is, what Jesus declares, what Jesus cares about, what Jesus is committed to, and also in light of that, what does Jesus reject? What is Jesus not willing to compromise on? What is Jesus at the core of who he is saying, no, it is written, here's these things. And so obviously there's a lot about this text that speaks to um, who Jesus is as the Son of God, his divinity, all those different dynamics. But as we think about the question, what can we learn from the character of Jesus, or could you do a sermon on the character of Jesus, it's also important to see how out of what Jesus did, how out of what Jesus has said, what can we learn from it? How can we continue in our work towards uh, becoming Christ-like and being molded by Christ from this story? And so I want to build off a framework that was helpful for me uh, when I was in grad school and then also as a teacher as uh, a bunch of my students go through this book in their spiritual formation groups. Um, there's an amazing pastoral theologian by the name of Henry Nouwen who's um, been dead for a while now, 
Uh, but his books are deceptively small, but yet you can spend forever in them. He has these great condensed, just few paragraphs that could equate to some people's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of exploration. And specifically, this framework um, always comes to mind ever since I first, um, first experienced it in undergrad and then later in grad school, as we think about what can we learn about Jesus through this temptation narrative. And so now in his book, In the Name of Jesus, um, puts forth three things that we can relate as Christian leaders to the temptation of Jesus. And he says, in Jesus' temptation, uh, Christ, what we can learn from it, there's three temptations that are present there. The temptation to be relevant, the temptation to be spectacular, and the temptation to be powerful. And so to be relevant, to be able to turn these stones into loaves of bread, and that's going to wipe out a lot of need right away, right? <laughs> all of a sudden, you have the quick fix to everything that is going on. Like, I can just turn all this to bread. There we go. We're done. Easy. No deep relationship. No anything. Just flash, splash, relevance in the very consumer way of thinking of relevance. Not, um, not in any other ways. And so to be spectacular, to throw yourself down, come up to the highest cliff, throw yourself down, surely... Can you imagine the spectacular feat, the spectacular nature that that would be able to bring about for people who saw that? Um, some of y'all know my story a little bit. I hung around the circus a lot as a child and grew up juggling um, in Baraboo, Wisconsin within that dynamic. And so spectacular was all over the place. There was high wires. You would go down to the post office and there would be an elephant sitting in front of the post office just hanging out taking a watermelon, right? And so you just get used to this reality. You would see people with baby tiger cubs just on a leash like nothing was weird. And so there's this sense of like spectacular. But when we create this notion of spectacular, we're doomed to continue to have to repeat it time and time after again. And so there's a sense that like I could get all these people to be amazed by me right now. I wouldn't have to invest in them. I wouldn't have to build with them. I wouldn't have to continue on in my ministry in this way. And so, and then the last one, to be powerful. The devil tempts him into saying, hey, all the kingdoms, here you go. All powerful. And Jesus says no. And so in these, in these temptations, and in this framework, imperfect as it is, but I think it's a helpful starting point, as we think about things that Jesus are saying no to here, things that Jesus are saying yes to here, that to be relevant, to be spectacular, to be powerful, at least in the way that the world understands it. And I think that really needs to be clear throughout this next time that we're together, is a lot of these notions, thinking about how do we understand, what do we glean to, what would the world think is spectacular, what would the world think is powerful, what would the world think is relevant, because Jesus is very relevant, Jesus is very spectacular, Jesus is very powerful, but also the way that we interpret that and the way that we want things to happen don't always match up with our definitions of those words. And we saw that when I did the question of who are the disciples. A lot of things that the disciples were expecting and wanting did not line up with how Jesus saw those same statements, those same words, those same terminology. And so here, as a jumping off point to understand Jesus' character, the things that he says no to and the things that he says yes to, I think point us to the fact that Jesus and who he is offers us another way with him and through him a way that's with him and through him, not a way of, here's just a quick fix, not a way of just, all right, all the problems are gone, but a way that is with him and through him. 
And to pick up on this, so if we think of that foundation of this temptation, of some of the temptations that I threw out as ways that we could potentially relate to them, and temptations that we all face, because, I, I mean, at least I'll throw myself under there, like, to be relevant, to be spectacular, to be powerful, those are pretty tempting temptations. And I think it's temptations that the church has too often fallen into. And Jesus says, no, <laughs> there's another way. There is a more immersive way. There is, in some ways, a longer way, but yet a more freeing way, a more defining way. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 11, Jesus points to us to this way, to this opportunity, to this option um, that is a way that is, um, is better than a quick fix, that is different than a quick fix, that is more transformative than a quick fix. And Matthew 11, his offer, and this is a verse that a lot of you will be familiar with, or verses that a lot of you will be familiar with that I've heard quoted uh, multiple times, and want to give some depth to these. So as we think about these things Jesus has said no to, think about these things that Jesus has said yes to, and what does that reveal about who he is, about how we understand these concepts of relevance, relevant, spectacular, and powerful. In Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It isn't just, here's all your answers, here's everything provided you, it's here, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus, through his entire public ministry and through his life, is not necessarily interested in the boom, everything is solved and easy. He invites us into relationship. That is part of who he is. That is a key attribute of who he is. He wants to journey with you. He doesn't he wants to form. He doesn't want to just give up on you right away, and he doesn't want to think that everything's perfect and fine right away. He wants to continue on with you. And I think a couple of things that are important as we understand Jesus and who he is that come out of this is this notion of talking about yoke and burden. Easy yoke and light burden. <laughs> so if you think about a yoke, something that controls you, that steers you, that takes you on a specific path, being easy doesn't necessarily, there's, there's a tension there, right? There's this tension that there is this invitation, that there's this offer for relationship, there's this opportunity to come to Jesus, and it's a gift, it's free, it's easy, but yet it's a specific trajectory and path that you're going on. So that's challenging, because then that wrestles up against with what we want, and where we're going, and where we think we're going. And so how Jesus then comes in and says, come to me, follow me, learn with me, my yoke is easy. And then light burdens, right? Doesn't get away with burdens, but there's light burdens there. And what makes the burdens light? Is it because everything that we're going to face, everything that Jesus knows that we're going to face is easy, our light? Or is it because Jesus makes it light? Our dependency on Jesus, our presence with Jesus, our invitation to come in and be with Jesus our confidence in the fact that it is Jesus that makes these things happen, it's Jesus that we're following, creates this tension of easy yoke and light burden. Now, it's definitely a lot easier of a thing for me to come up here and say than for me to come up and practice. And so I'm not saying all of a sudden you're like, ah, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
I'm coasting the rest of the way. Um, a handful of you who've come to Theology on Tap or come to other events knows that has not been my experience the last few years at all. And so, but the reminder is there, is if this is something that we are not embracing and experience, then where does that speak to how we're trusting in who Jesus is? That doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. It doesn't mean anything light. But with our dependency on Jesus and who Jesus is and continuously seeking him through these trials, through these burdens, we're going to be able to see his work and we're going to be able to see his presence because that is what he continuously promises, promises us. Another tension that we might find in this verse, again, of course, about how we understand words, how we think about it, is that Jesus says, I'll give you rest. And now, depending what you, who you are, what you come from, rest is going to look a lot different, of a th- different for you. Um, rest isn't always going to look like entering life transformation processes. Rest isn't always going to look like continue to take on the day. I was just talking to someone um, earlier this morning that I've thrown away a lot of my weekend being stressed about Monday already. And thinking about, like, I don't want, <laughs> there's a lot of challenges that I don't want to face right now. And so rest in the sense that I don't feel like I have that in a sense that I won't rest. I don't have rest in the sense that I just want to go open up the computer, throw on Netflix, lay down and binge a couple seasons and preparing for new shows that are coming out, right? I don't get rest in that way. <laughs> uh, it is restful when that happens, but rest in the sense that where are we putting our rest in and who are we allowing to walk with us and hold us through that time? that Jesus promised us. And so it is an active rest. It's not a vacation. It's a reliance on God being with us. And I think that's a motif that we see through the entirety of Scripture. We're talking through the Hebrew Scriptures, through the New Testament, is a sense of God's promise to say, hey, listen to me, follow me, and I am with you. My My presence is with you. All the way back to the Exodus story, in Exodus 33, Moses says to the Lord, see, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, excuse me, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. This has been the core about who God is since the beginning. Is this, I am with you. I am present with you, and I will give you rest. Do the Exodus stories continue and still have a ton of trials after that, and burdens, and hardships, and not even being able to see it into its completion for people? Yes, but God's promise is to continue to be present with you and give you rest. Does not mean ease in the way that we think of ease. That does not mean relaxation in the way that we think of relaxation, though those moments will come. It is this promise of presence because that is who God is and that is who Jesus is. This call for rest is also a call back to the dis- disruption of rest within the garden. If anything post the garden, life after the fall could be described in anything, it would be restlessness and violence and hardship and challenges, not what they experience in the garden. But even that is something that we need to think through as well, because even what they experience in the garden and this restfulness and this place of rest is a co-laboring with a God, a partnering with God, being present with God, to tilling the land, to caring for the animals, 
to an activity. And so even though the technology was invented in the garden, they're just not popping up their computer and streaming all the seasons on Netflix, right? There is this activity, there is this living, there's life, there is this fulfilling their calling. And so even that notion of rest, this invitation to rest, isn't just some paradise where we put a bunch of umbrellas in our drinks and just kick back and relax. There is this call, this activity to become and live into who God has called us to be. And so even in here in Jesus' words, to come to me, all who labor and heavy ra- uh, laden, and I will give you rest, is a callback, a recognition of that that has been disrupted. And here is Jesus seeming to bring that to us through him. And that rest is found again, time and time again, in abiding in Jesus. Abiding in Jesus in the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, to continuing to, continuing to seek him out because he is there and he is present. Jesus in his public ministry reminds us that the way of Jesus does not look like the way of the world. And I think, I hope, as we're doing this quick survey of these texts to try to be able to understand what are some themes that we can see about who Jesus is, how Jesus lives, what we can learn and glean from his character, we see that he is calling us away from the ways of the world. He is calling us into a different life, an alternative way of being and existing within our context and cultures. And so in Matthew 20, 25 through 28, he's recognizing about how the systems and structures work around him. He's recognizing the dynamics of how we, um, how the people walk with one another, lead one another, hold things over one another. And so in Matthew 20, 25 through 28, writes, but Jesus called to him and said, you know what, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded, lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is calling out, right, look at these Gentiles, look at their life, they are lording it over you. There is this structure here that is antithetical to the structure in which I am calling you to. There is this sense of power, there's a sense of dominion, there's a sense of um, hierarchy in an unhealthy way. And Jesus says, no, look at me, look at who I am, look at the attributes of who I am, and this is what I'm calling you to. And so he speaks directly against that. And so for us as Christians, for us as a church, I just want to plea with us about as we think about Jesus's character and who he is, that we have to reject a lot of the temptations of this world. And so to even go back to use Nowen's framework, thinking about the temptation of Jesus and what can we as Christian leaders and as Christians learn from this and how can it relate to our world, that we are to reject the temptations of relevance, being spectacular, and power, to use Nowen's framework, and come under and be formed by humility and servanthood Jesus displayed through the giving of, giving of himself. Humility and servanthood that Jesus continuously displays from the way he was born to the way that he lived to the way that he died and even to the way that he rose. When we talked about the disciples and what we can learn from it, they had all locked themselves away. They were terrified. They doubted. One wasn't there anymore. And he still comes in and says, peace be with you. I mean, if he's really craving anything but the servanthood and humility of anything beyond that, he has a pretty 
obvious bone to pick, at possibly, right? He has some frustration. And he said, no, this is not how we're living. This is not how we're doing. We're not creating these systems and structures that lord it over. We've seen this. I'm seeing this right now, and I'm saying no. Humility, servanthood, giving of himself. And so these actions that Jesus displays here, how it speaks into God's larger motif in general, consistently speak against what they are seeing, what they think is norm, what they think is this is just the way society functions. So this idea of humility and servanthood that Jesus displayed through the giving of himself, these actions, these actions of humility and servanthood, the core, I would at least argue, the core of Jesus' character are the antithesis to not only the devil's temptations of Jesus that we read earlier, but to the models of success and belonging that the world and let's be honest, because I get to come and just talk for a couple weeks, and then I can get feedback and coaching and development from there, right, uh, from that, is that not only that the world offers, but too often the church has offered us as well. These aren't just temptations that the world offers, but that we offer within our structures, which are supposed to speak against them as well. So within these constructs, Jesus' invitation probably seems ridiculous. What do you mean that I give up my status? What do you mean that I give up what I necessarily need that makes me feel good? Not feel good in a nutrition way, not feel good in a level of survivability, but just feel good. What do you mean that I put the other before myself? That doesn't make sense. No system works like that. What do you mean that like we all have to match perfectly before we can lead together? And again, to think back to the disciples, that didn't work then and it's not working now in a lot of ways, because then we just create fun little things called echo chambers. And it becomes hard to grow, and it becomes hard to learn, and it's hard to be able to say, what is Jesus calling us to? And so we set up these systems, we set up these things that like, oh man, <laughs> you come to church just like that? That's what? That's not okay. Or, you, you know, you, you're talking about that TV show? Okay, whoa, what? Or just this notion of like, just come. In that verse from Matthew, there's nothing about Jesus' word. There's no footnote in scripture that says, come, look at the footnote, here's the million and a half things that you need to do to come. You don't need to sit at the cool kids' table. I'd like it if you sat at the geek table. That'd be okay. But you don't need to do that either. You can sit at the cool table because the reality is, as much of frustrations and prejudice as I have against that, as they, I perceive that they have against me, I have to recognize that I have the exact same thing to them. Why is it okay for, th for me to get mad about mocking them and then I'm like, huh, okay, I'm going to go ahead and dictate everything that you believe just based off your dress right now. But yet, because it's me doing it, somehow it becomes okay. Somehow it becomes vindicated. Somehow it becomes like, no, and Jesus says, no. Look, this is not how we operate. This is not how we work. But yet it mirrors so much of what's still going on continuously today. And, often, and I have to recognize, and again, Take this for what y'all want for yourself. But for me, I have to recognize, like, how am I also partnering and perpetuating this? And not then, what do I necessarily need to do differently as far as, but how do I need to abide in Jesus to be able to recognize, like, wow, man, what Jesus sees in me, he sees in you. And that's crazy to think about because there's a lot of people that I don't see what Jesus sees in them. There's a lot of communities that I don't see what Jesus sees in them, right? Okay, maybe it's just me, okay? Like, but recognizing the fact that Jesus says, no, 
Look at how they lorded over one another. This is not going to be you. But we do. We do. We set up these country clubs. We set up these, not country clubs in the sense of like country clubs where you go golf, but like the sense that you have to meet some standard to come in. But Matthew, Jesus says, come. And that has to seem ridiculous as much as it seems ridiculous sometimes to me now. And even ridiculous because it seems so different than what I've been formed in in many aspects. And so Jesus says that here in humility and servanthood, this is what we're called to. And it is ridiculous. In uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, Apostle Paul writes, uh, starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of normal birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is a message that's stumbling block to those who feel like they have all the answers. To those that fulfill, they say, if I just do X, Y, and Z, this equals that, which is super helpful for me because I never could figure out what X equaled an equation anyway, right? Just stared at it. So it's helpful that I have no clue what that is. Because then it says, oh, it, I still somehow can figure out how to abide in Jesus. And so it is, it seems like a stumbling block, and it is a stumbling block to those who believe they can fulfill the law. They say, no, if I just do this, if I just do this, and let's be honest, we sometimes we use the law as an excuse not to open ourselves up to transforming work of Christ because we say, no, let me just try it one more time. I'm going to do it on my own just one more time. I'm going to do it on my own just one more time. And then we're like, I just can't, can't do it. But it's also folly to those who don't think they need anything beyond themselves. Like, that's just crazy. Why would I depend on this? Why would I do that? It's insane. And so it just is laughable. And so this stumbling block, this folly that happens to those who think they can fulfill the law and to those who just don't think they need anything beyond themselves makes that the message is, I got Christ crucified and that's all I got. I can talk about the impact of this. I can talk about the perception. I can talk about what my study and prayer brought to that. But at the end of the day, that's who Jesus is, is Jesus says, here, here I am. Not me, I'm saying here I am, here's Jesus. So imagine Jesus right here, okay? Here, I, here he is, here's Jesus, okay? And that he says, come to me and I will give you rest. And he invites that because that's who he is and it's a mentality of servanthood, it's a mentality of humility. You can't have Jesus' character without those two things being the cornerstone of who he is and what he calls us into. One thing I want to be clear, though, about this is what this doesn't mean and does mean, at least a brief summation, I won't be able to hit all of it, is famously the theologian Karl Barth uh, did an interview once, and before the, uh, he's like, can we, start the, can we start the interview now? And he said, the answer is Jesus, what is the question? And I've definitely leaned on that a lot in my life as someone who is a perpetual follower, sleep, fall asleeper during Sunday school. Like, it got me out of a lot of jams. I would hear someone be like, Robert, Robert, and I'd be like, Jesus! And it had a really good percentage rate, right? 
because a lot of times that's what we were talking about. Um, but then I would continue to fall asleep. But in this case, there's deep truth to that answer, right? There's deep truth to the fact that Jesus is the answer. What this doesn't mean, though, is that we aren't invited in to be able to open ourselves up and do work in which he calls us into, right? So oftentimes there can be this apathetic Jesus is the answer, right? And then there can be this active Jesus is the answer. And we're not acting out of ourself. We're not acting out of our own ability. We're acting out of who Jesus is, the peace that Jesus provides, and the direction in which Jesus calls us. And so I just want to be really clear about that because too often times we can come to our fellow community members with big issues in our life, huge challenges in our life, and we say like, oh, Jesus, which is true. But that Jesus is then going to compel you forward, right? It is going to compel you to the fact that, oh my goodness, Jesus gave us a church. I'm having this issue. I wonder if anyone else has had this issue. Can I, can we talk about it? That's not trusting, that's not not trusting Jesus. That's responding to the answer being Jesus. Because Jesus has provided us that community. And I know I've probably said this a handful of times that I, when I've preached, and so it's not about being able to be like, oh man, Robert, Robert really wants us to know this about him. It's not, because there is literally no place on earth that has consistently been more hostile to the notion of getting professional mental help than the church, right? Literally would not be here if Jesus hadn't been able to provide a counselor that works with me throughout a lot of my life, all right? So I just want to be really clear that Jesus is the answer, but Jesus' life, the rest in which he calls us to, compels us into the community and the people which he has equipped as well. And so it is not, not trusting Jesus, it's being able to actually live into what Jesus is doing in your life. At the same time, I also have plenty of friends who have had miraculous things happen in that moment that Jesus' name is declared. And so there's a whole spectrum and scope there. I recognize that, but since I had the opportunity to say that the answer is Jesus, I also feel like I have the responsibility to tend to the malpractice in which has happened with that. Jesus does call us into community. Coming to your fellow church people for help is not not coming to Jesus for help. It's coming to the people in which Jesus has provided for you. So talk about the hard stuff. Talk about the challenging stuff. Be prayed for about the challenging things because that's what Jesus wants. That's what Jesus called for. He wants us to care about the other because he cared about the other. And if we think about the main attributes of Jesus making his character, then servant, humility, caring for the other are key to the point that he laid down his life. And so I want to be very clear about that, that oftentimes we just stamp it on and we say, okay, it's fixed. But just like with the rest that Jesus invites us into, it is an active, it is an active Jesus. Not once, not ever, does Jesus say, come earn me. He says, come to me. He doesn't say you have to get to level 100 and then beat the last boss and then you finally get me. He doesn't say, do this and that and then you finally get me. He says, I am here. And that's a promise. I am here. Easy yoke, light burdens. The yoke and the burden don't go away. But the presence of Jesus continues and it's a commitment, and it's a promise, and it will continue on within it, and we need it desperately. We need it for ourselves, we need it for each other, and we need to see the fact that Jesus has brought together this community. We live in an insanely individualistic society, <laughs> right? And I perpetuate that in so many ways. 
And Jesus says, come to me. And then Jesus gave us a church as well. And so he said, come, and I will give you rest. You don't need to earn it. You just need to come. I just think that in one way is such a simple message, but it's such a hard message. Because the world, and oftentimes the church, says, do this, look this way, um, get this type of house, live in this community, do this, let's not talk about that. And Jesus says, come to me. Come with your questions. Come with your concerns. Come with your depression. Come with whatever it is that is going on. And Jesus is going to be there. And Jesus is going to be there through Jesus. Jesus is going to be there through others that he provided for you. And I get that I've said the same thing a handful of times, but it cannot be overstated time and time again. That Jesus is with you, and Jesus is for you. And that you really actually, and this is where the Southerners win, is a y'all. Time and, you know, there's all these fun translations of the Bible, right? I don't know if you've seen them. There's this great translation called the Cottonwood Translation, right? And it's all in Southern dialect. It's absolutely, it's, it's fun to read. But where, where my professors would say that it is better than almost any other translation is the amount of times that it uses y'all. Because it is a y'all. It is a y'all. Jesus comes and speaks to you, but he comes and speaks to y'all. And he calls y'all into y'all, right? I love getting to say y'all. It's amazing. And so I just want you to remember that. This is not, this is just a continued reminder in that, that Jesus doesn't say, come earn me. He says, come to me, and I will give you rest. In this moment, the next moment, the moment after that, and it's for you, it's for I, because it's very much who he is and at the core of his character. Amen. And to continue on with that thought, um, we have the opportunity provided every week to partake in the Lord's Supper uh, for those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so when the worship band comes up in a little bit to pray, we're going to have the opportunity to do that. Um, we center it once a month. And so what I want to do is I want to read um, the text and make uh, one or two comments, and then I'll pray, and then uh, the worship band will come up, and we will have the opportunity to reflect and respond uh, through the taking, taking of the Lord's Supper. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 11, starting with verse 23, uh, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after, support, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you come up here and take this drink and take this cup, Jesus' promise are not just for you. Jesus' promise is for everyone there, everyone in general, but those who have committed to come in, come and remember through the cup. Jesus' promises are for all beyond that, but for those who have committed that want to remember through this way, so you're not just coming and saying, this is my body, and this is my blood shed for you, it's shed for y'all. And that changes this. That changes the entire landscape of everything because the fact that Jesus' promises are for you, that means Jesus' promises have to be for my high school bully who I still don't like because I know he's a faithful Christian, right? 
and anyone else that there might be conflict within here, as they come up, Jesus' promises are for them too. And everyone else that is meeting Sunday morning who says that Jesus Christ is Lord and is coming and doing this because it's the first Sunday of the month, so there's a sense that the first Sunday is almost a universal practice of communion because most churches are doing it if they don't do it every week. The fact is, is Jesus' promises is for them as well. And so we walk out of here after this, recognizing that that's my brother or sister in Christ. And that is hugely at the core of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be able to talk about who you are. I pray that if anything was of you, of stock, of relevance, that it sticks, and anything that is not would just go away, and that you would be glorified and honored in our time as we close this worship. In your name.